Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. And now we'll get right into it. Tonight we're covering uh, after a... uh what's it called, a little vacation over here because of the Pesach uh, season. And tonight and all the other nights will be at this hour, at this time. And here we go. Uh, tonight I'm covering what I call the Deris Rishon, which is the name of a book. It's a guy. It's a guy, it's like a labor rabbinowitz. He's just called off him by his name, uh, by the name of his book. And uh, it's actually, a, uh, I'm going to argue tonight, it's a great relevance to us uh, today. So let me begin by uh, remarking that uh, last time we talked about Gretz, right? And by the second half of the 19th century, second half of the 1800s, uh, for the first time in Jewish history, uh, Jewish history books <laughs> are part of the general Jewish culture. Think about what I just said. Usually, it used to be rabbinic literature, uh, Talmud, uh, Bible, Halacha, things like that, and to some lesser degree, philosophy, you know, like the Rambam or something like that. History really was a marginal sort of uh, subject. But not after Gretz, you know, not after the 19th century. Increasingly, in the modern era of Judaism, Jewish history books become the basic tenets, basic texts that educated Jews in Central and Western Europe are reading to find out about Judaism. That's unprecedented. Now, even today, the average person is not going to read the Gemara and all the rest of it. So, to the degree they're interested in anything Jewish, and they'll take a book out of the library, take a Jewish history book, or at least they used to. <laughs> Okay? Now we look at a point where it's not even that. But if we talk to our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation, and I'm talking about good people, you know, business people, whatever, educated, but they're not, like I say, uh, perhaps very religious, or even if they are religious, they can't read Aramaic and all this stuff. And so the Jewish books that they get out of the library, they buy in the bookstores, the Jewish history books, this is where they get their knowledge of Judaism for among massive Jews. That never happened before, uh, but it does now. And this is, I mean, it's a radically new uh, phenomenon. Consequently, uh, the great impact of the Heinrich Gretz, for example, particularly, in, not only in his original, which was in German, 11 volumes, but in the many knockoffs. There were many translations into other languages, Yiddish, Hebrew, uh, all the European languages, and some of the Asian languages, and abridgments uh, stolen. Some of them were done illegally. That's how it goes. The best one is Gretz, Fartaishna, Fabesers. You know, there was a lot of this. I'm serious. That, you know, and, and, and they, there was a whole lot of that and this is what, I, what I'm talking about these knockoffs is what the average individual read and so people acquired a knowledge of the Jewish past to a great degree from the popularity of Gretz's work and from the fact that it's the only one out there as regards the history of the Talmud itself the literary history the history of the Toshavah they call it or maybe I'm wrong maybe the history of the books that the rabbi said it's about all that stuff um, becomes interesting and people start writing about it because there's the Bible, that's the basic way to get Judaism, but then there's the Talmud, and what is that? And how did that happen? And it wasn't written at one time. And so who is this, and what is this? Is it made up? Is it uh, you know, influenced by foreign cultures? You know, what is all that stuff, that's the source of all the customs and the laws that we have over there? No one had ever written seriously in a history way about the history of the Tershaw itself, the history of the uh, Talmudic literature. 
So, uh, but that's not true. By the time you get to the 19th century, in addition to grads who I showed you last time had a lot to say in the subject, uh, there are others. Remember we mentioned uh, Zachariah Frankel, who's the founder of conservative uh, Judaism. That this is how he, his, his area of expertise and his famous and controversial books were exactly on the history of the Talmud. Uh, the Darke Mishnah, for example, which is about the Tanakh literature, his very interesting Mava HaYerushalmi, which is the first time anybody ever wrote a kind of historical introduction to Yerushalmi. These are hard uh, kind of works. There were a whole group of others, starting in the 1800s and not before, who sort of critically, for the first time, uh, tried to understand or look at the Talmudic era in Jewish history. Like, you know, who are these rabbis? Is it true? Is it a legend? What, what did this guy write? Really write this? And what, when they live? And you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, there was Nachman Krochmal, which is a famous name from the past, who wrote a book called Mordechai Azman, God for the Perplexed at the Time, in which he says he can't understand Judaism unless he Jewish history, and therefore he has to break it up into the right periods and understand the dynamics of Jewish history and how it manifests itself in the Talmud and the post-Talmudic literature. People didn't write like this before the 19th century. There's the famous Shir, Shlomo Yudah Rappaport, who, uh, as you can see over here, doesn't look like a Moscow, but was. <laughs> okay? uh, that, that, uh, there are many jokes about him and things like that. You know, I won't go into now where they say, you're the non-from one, you know? But, uh, he, but, uh, and by the way, in his particular case, he's the son-in-law of the Ketos HaKoshet. He published Avni Milun. I mean, in other words, he could destroy in learning anybody around today. Let's get that straight. You understand? He was a huge London. But that's, and, and he was interested in Gemara and all that kind of stuff. But what really turned him on was Jewish history. And what really moved him was the biographies and putting together and, and, and deconstructing and trying to get the past. And uh, he's a pioneer of these works, whether you like them or don't like them. And he's the first one to publish critical biographies. And indeed, he has a whole book, Erich Milan, to try to understand the sources of the terms and what they really mean in the Greek and Roman and Babylonian context and all that sort of thing. So he is self-taught, but he knows all the European languages. It's uh, quite an interesting uh, person. Now, uh, most of all, the person becomes the Gret of Talmud, the, the most important uh, historian, writer in the 19th century, Isaac Hirschweitz, a name that no one's heard of today, but was once upon a time a very big name. Has a six-volume uh, book in Hebrew, Dor, Dor, Vidorshov, which once upon a time was a classic. And uh, he is the representative par excellence of the second Haskalah. The Haskalah movement went in three phases, A, B, and C. The first one was in the time of Moses Mendelssohn in Berlin, which lasted a generation and died out. And that had to do with opening Jewish culture up to other cultures and expanding the definition of Judaism to include uh, you know, more than just Gemara, 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 and uh, things of that nature. But then, as always happens in the Haskalah movement, and has happened in so many Jewish movements down till today, it dies out of a generation because they can't get the kids interested in this. And then it popped up again in the early 1800s in Galicia and Central Europe. It's called the Haskalah of Galicia, or the second Haskalah. And uh, there the focus was Eastern European or Central European Jews who have a pretty good, what we would call, uh, yeshiva-type education, but, uh, don't, but, but a very narrow one, therefore they don't have a secular education, and they strongly resent it, and this get, uh, moves them to try to uh, rebel or change the uh, existing norms, the very narrow Talmudic norms of rabbinic culture and Jewish culture, all in the Hebrew language, because that's the only language they can write in. They don't have an education other than that. And, uh, and, and in many, many cases in Second Haskalah, the, the new and critical study of the Jewish past. I don't want lies my father told me. Get it? I don't want lies my Rebbe told me, because they don't know nothing. I'm going to find myself the real thing. That sort of attitude. And this is the beginning of what we call 
of the modern study of Jewish history. Um, Rappaport, Krochmal are from the second Haskalah, as I said before, and uh, many other figures, um, and uh, their books, you know, some knew more, some knew less. This guy was the most important uh, figure of them all. Um, he is from Moravia, okay, just the province of Moravia, which you can see was dotted with tiny little Jewish communities. Isn't that interesting? Moravia is a small part of Czechoslovakia. It's not even Czechoslovakia anymore, it's Czech Republic. So it's, a, it's, it's like a third of the Czech Republic. And, uh, and, they, and it had like a hundred, and you look at it, look how many Jewish communities are there. And each one had 20, 20, 30, 40, 50 families. The big ones had 100, 200 families. It's not what you think, very small, and yet they're all connected. And they had a whole network of yeshivas once upon a time. This is, they had to call the Shai Takonis, the 310 Takonis, going back to the 15 or 1600s, in which every town with so and so many families has to have a teacher and a school, and, and not even yeshivas over there. So he emerges out of this whole area. But Moravia was not a place where the Hasidic movement hit. And consequently, it was a mixture, a very interesting mixture, of Frum and Haskalah. Get it? Moravia is the place in which the two mix together, sometimes with a, you know, straight whiskey, and sometimes you know, with ice, you know, uh, all kind of uh, interesting combination. He's a perfect example of this. Uh, he was, in other words, somebody from well-to-do family who went to the yeshiva system over there. He even was a Russian yeshiva, one of these little yeshivas for a while in Moravia. So this is not your typical what you imagine as a Jewish history writer, is it? It's someone who knows how to learn, or at least to some degree. He ends up, he tried to go into business. It didn't work out. It's all it's a whole story. He ends up uh, in Vienna and uh, lives for 50 years in Vienna, um, where he is part of what we would call the conservative Judaism of Vienna, which is something that once existed and doesn't today. This is a European 19th century phenomenon, which, which has to do with exactly what I said before. It's a combination of uh, Orthodox, conservative, Scala, all mixed together. Um, it was a restrained form, a very restrained form of Reform Judaism. It's not the Reform Judaism of the Reform movement. It's something different. These are called the Vienaritus, the Vienna Rite. So, for example, um, the big Stadt Temple in Vienna did not have an organ. Uh, but on the other hand, they're very modern in many other ways. A big item with them was this, that they had the Mormon uh, Tabernacle Choir. You know, they, 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 the equivalent of that, a huge emphasis on, on the music should be presented very well. It was like opera show, which is nice if you like that sort of thing. Uh, but I, nothing I said violated the Shulchan Aruch. You see what I'm saying? And uh, the, the men and the ladies were sitting separately, but the ladies said it's like opera house. You know, it's not just a lady section, it's a fancy sort of thing. And uh, there wasn't really a rabbi in the community. There was a, there was a, there was a, this guy with the rubber community, he had no job. You know, I mean, he had a little minion. And this guy, uh, as you see, is the pastor. He's the Prediger. And he was very famous, Yelenek. He was world famous as an orator. And his job, but you can look at him, he's not particularly uh, <laughs> uh, from, but on the other hand, you know, what he does behind closed doors is a bit, but in public you don't violate the Jewish laws. You see what I'm saying? And all this is part of, uh, of the particular type of uh, conservative Judaism, I guess you'd call it, that was once upon a time popular in Central Europe. Um, it's, it's a very interesting sort of thing which no longer exists. Um, and Yelenek was a very interesting uh, type of person. Uh, by the way, if you want your... Uh, his granddaughter is Mercedes. His son was... Uh, None of his kids were from, but his son was a businessman, and he had a daughter, Mercedes Yelenek, and he's the guy who ended up financing Daimler, and so they called the car to Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> right? So anyway, the, uh, yeah, you learn a lot on trivia. The, anyway, the point is, 
you'll remember where you, you'll remember that useless information when you heard it. The, um, but the fact is, um, the, uh, Yannick is a very, uh, very unusual uh, uh, person, and he established a JTS of his own, a Jewish Theological Seminary of a certain type, and Vienna was there till the Holocaust, and, uh, and it graduated a lot of rabbis in its day, once upon a time, and this was a place that was conservative, but to the right of the JTS of Breslau, so to speak. So I'm describing phenomena over here which didn't make it to America. You understand? I'm talking about a European sensibility which once upon a time existed, and, uh, and yet it's not orthodox. Now, uh, he published, he delivered uh, lectures there for decades. He, died, he was an old man when he died. And, uh, and he published eventually his research in his uh, magnum opus, like say, like seven volumes. I had it from an old uncle of mine who died many years ago. It uh, was a real Moscow. The... Uh, my mother's brother. The, the, uh, it's, it's, it's all Hebrew, and it used to be published a lot. It hasn't been published since the 20s, and it's a detailed uh, Gretzian type of account of how he understands the oral law uh, evolved over the course of the time in Jewish history. I remember he 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 can prove to you that the oral law existed in the biblical times. On the other hand, he does not believe that the oral law comes from Sinai or Moses or any of that kind of stuff. He's not orthodox but very traditionalistic. And, he, and you know, he likes the Mishnah, he doesn't like the Gemara. He likes the Rehud Anasi, he doesn't like, he doesn't like uh, Shama. You know, he's very Gretzian in that regard. He's full of uh, portraits, which he takes to the Middle Ages, down to the time of Maimonides, and you, know, you can find which Rishon he likes and why, and which one he doesn't like. And it was wildly popular once upon a time because there was a Hebrew-speaking audience once upon a time. Okay? Today, who could read this if you can't read Hebrew? Uh, but once upon a time there was a certain type of person who read Hebrew well let's that, stop and think about that for a minute who is the audience it's not the average man and woman in Europe the average man and woman in Europe in the 1800s cannot read Hebrew they can read German if they live in France they can read French or English uh, who can read and to be perfectly honest even people who can read Yiddish can't read Hebrew the type of person who's a worker or something like that who can read a Yiddish newspaper Right? The, the forward of the talk, that's one thing. You can't read a, a, a nice Hebrew. So who is the audience? As people, like you say, with a Shiva background, who sort of move past that, or maybe they're reading it secretly in the dorm. You know, that, 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 that whole... This is very much 1800s, okay? Now, it had a seminal influence on uh, conservative Judaism, this whole outlook. Uh, one of his students, it was him and Guy Friedman, they ran the, the seminary. One of their students uh, was a guy named Salman Schechter. Maybe you heard the name, okay? And who, who's Lubavitcher, who uh, from Romania, who ended up in the JTS in uh, Vienna, was profoundly influenced by that, and eventually, as we all know, ended up in New York City and brought all those ideas and cultures, which didn't exactly work in America because it's not Vienna, <laughs> you know? in, in America, uh, Salman Schechter really schneers Salman Schechter. He, you know, he's, he's a, he was his father was Lubavitcher. The, um, but but, but uh, you know. These are seminal works of, in terms of influence, although most of us aren't even aware. Uh, they never even heard of this book until a minute ago. Now, uh, what about the Orthodox? Oh boy, they are enraged at what's happening, but they're impotent. <laughs> what are they going to do about it? They don't have any history. You get it? You can scream at the wind all you want. Try Chai Vakim, as they say. Uh, what can the Yeshiv world, what can the Hasidic world do to argue against, oh, Weiss, oh, Gretz, oh, Frankel, this is terrible, it's Kfira. Really? How do you know? I just know it's clear. How do you know? <laughs> they don't know anything. And so it was, I mean, you can't fight something with nothing. And so it was a real problem. 
But what about the German Jews? They're, they're Orthodox, they're educated, right? Oh, German, Tom Derchez, oh boy. What about that? Not necessarily. Sans Rebel Hirsch is opposed to the study of Jewish history. And I'll tell you something else that many people will know. Sans Rebel Hirsch was actually opposed for most people to go to college. It's not what you think. In Frankfurt, the school was up to the 10th grade, and after, not the 12th grade, and after that, it's a real, a real shula. After that, you go out and get a job in, in, in the business world. You know, so if you graduate from his school, you're not, you're not ready to go for grad school. You got his school, you'll go out and get a job. You know why? Better go out in the business world, start a business with your own, and then you can keep Shabbos. Right? And you know the old line, and the guy without the college education has a successful business is going to employ the PhDs. No, that, that's the Hersheyan uh, message. It's, it's not what people think. So therefore, he's not going to be involved, or he wasn't involved, in you know, critiquing uh, you know, the, beyond what we talked about last week, last time, and, you know, Weiss and this and that and the other, going to Jewish history. Hirsch basically had no time for Jewish history. By that I mean the academic study of Jewish history that was emerging in the course of the 19th century. See, so he said, just avoid all this, uh, go through the school, uh, get a job, get married, you know, live and die. You know, it's, 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 it's what, that, that, that's what the rest of us do. And by the way, to build up a very successful, a financially successful, I might add, and, and other culturally successful, a community. Okay? Um, Ralph Hildesheimer, who was the uh, other big rabbi in Germany, was of a different mind. He was naturally an academic type. He got a PhD, and he was interested in Jewish history. Uh, and he didn't like, obviously, everything going grass and whites and all the rest of it. But he was a person of Peter Kochus, as we would say today. Which means he was doing so many things all the time that you, you, know, you don't have any time to concentrate on any particular item. You get it? He was a tremendous communal activist. Um, he was, by the way, a Jewish statesman. I'll tell you something. He was fighting for the Ethiopian Jews when nobody ever heard of them back in the 1800s. You, you don't know. And he was fighting for, for Jewish settlement in Palestine before anybody even uh, heard about it. You see? And he's also fighting to send money to the suffering Russian Jews and all the time. At the same time, he's trying to run a kahila in, in Berlin and be active in imperial German Jewish affairs and directing his own rabbinical seminary. You get what I'm saying? In other words, he's multitasking in a big way. So he was, as I said before, a PhD. He was an interest in Semitics and history. He has all kinds of articles on the subject of Jewish history, but nothing big and grand. He didn't have an alternative version to the Jewish past, and these other guys are putting it out. So what do you do? Uh, the Hildesheimer Seminary in general, which was a Orthodox seminary in Berlin, uh, Dr. Prinzler graduated from there. So he says, what, uh, what, it was a very impressive place, but they do not produce a grand narrative the way Weiss had. Uh, the classic history professor for many years at the Hildesheimer Seminary was a very nice guy who never went to college. He was a Hebrew Berliner, and he published what he used to call Kugelgeschichte, which means he could tell you the history of Jewish diets and kiddish. I'm serious. And, and, um, and he has Ausland and Ghetto, you know, social history, uh, what life was like. Actually, I'll tell you the truth, his books are charming. They're very good. And some of them have been translated to Hebrew. He was thinking in German. He talks. He's the first guy got into Vatican, by the way. You see, way back in 1876, they wouldn't let a Jew go do research in the Vatican. But when they found out he's against the reform, you know, said he's, oh, that's okay. Uh, he, you know, was active in the Jewish history profession. But it's a bunch of little articles, and those things don't amount to a story they can give somebody to understand who my, who I, who my past is, what, who I am. Uh, by the late 19th century, in other words, by the late 19th century, the conservatives, as we call them today, conservative Judaism, they own Jewish history, and they own the grand narrative. That's all that's out there, and any of you, and I bet you many of you fall in this category, who grew up in my lifetime, 
and you re- and you took this book out of the library, you know, from this guy, or they read Gress, or they read some, you know, Max Demont, you know, Jews in History, or that sort of thing, the kind of thing you used to buy at the store. You bought into this narrative. Grazel, you know, the kind of things, if you ever took a Jewish history course in a college or something like high school, uh, it's all part of this grand narrative. You understand? Um, modified slightly, not modified slightly. And so your understanding of Jewish history, if you understand that there, is that of the, of the conservatives. Gudeman, all these guys are very good. Uh, Gudeman was the chief rabbi, they're all conservative rabbis. Uh, Gudeman was the chief rabbi of Vienna for many years. Uh, I'm thinking of talking about him next year. He uh, wrote the Erziehungsgeschichte. He wrote a history of Jewish education. Very fine writer and all that kind of stuff. Um, Bacher and Kaufman were legends. They were the two top students in Breslau, of the JTS of Breslau, and they founded the JTS of Budapest. And I know it sounds funny to Baltimoreans, but between them they wrote like 500 articles, 600 articles, and they're actually very good. You understand? They were very fine historians, and, um, and they're part of the grand narrative. And you could read their stuff today. It's, 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 uh, I, I mean, uh, Bacher wrote 60 books. Now, here's the point. 50 are good. <laughs> that, that, that's quite a statement. You know what I mean? To, to turn on that. They were very uh, solid historians. None of them are what you call orthodox, although conservative at that time isn't like conservative today. Right? Uh, David Kaufman was a very popular guy, and they were going to take him into the Reformed community to be the chief rabbi of, of uh, Berlin. Uh, the Gemeinde was run by Reformed Jews. They were really turned off because he showed up he was a trans orator. He showed up on Yom Kippur uh, not wearing, wearing tennis shoes, as we say today. You understand? And there weren't tennis shoes in the 19th century. So in other words, it was something not your formal uh, polished wear. You see? And so, oh, you believe in that stuff? Get out of here. You don't know what the life was like in those days. And so, um, anyway, that's the situation that goes. Now, in a di- so if you're from, and you're, you're Orthodox, let's put it that way, uh, your past doesn't exist. <laughs> your past is defined. Uh, by others, because your guys aren't doing anything. And either you do like Hirsch and say, well, I just shut out the whole world, I don't read any books, <laughs> or you do, <laughs> you see? Now, in addition to the attack on Orthodox Judaism, shall we say, um, during this time, in addition to that attack, um, Judaism itself is under attack by the Goyim in the late 19th and early 20th century. And intellectually, I'm talking about, um, the story of modern Jewish history uh, is that um, the Jews got civil rights by 1870, and then there was a big reaction against it. And you and I know that the civil rights were never actually revoked legally, but there was a huge popular sentiment for that. And the integration of Judaism, which has reasserted itself in, in this year, in our own time, Really, you can already see 100 years ago and before that. And, uh, for example, um, there was an intellectual assault of Judaism. Here's Delich, the most famous professor, with, with Babel and Bebel. Bart, you want to get this on the screen? This is Babel and Bebel, which means uh, the Jews stole it, the Bible stolen from Babylonian Hammurabi. Get it? It's not the Bible, it's the Bible. I mean, I got it the other way around. It's not the Bible, they got it. Yeah. And the whole Judaism just stole somebody else's clothes. Uh, oh, by the way, you think this is a Kleinikite? Who is the Talmud Muvok? Who's the number one student and disseminator of the doctrines of Franz Delich? Uh, this guy. The founder of my department. <laughs> Paul Haupt, the first 
Semitic professor at Johns Hopkins University, the first Semitic professor in the United States. You understand? He's the first uh, guy here. So here's a guy who all of his career, uh, his salary and department was financed by the Reformed Jews of Baltimore. Right? Even though he was always writing things which undermine the claims of ancient Judaism to be in, uh, anything other than a knockoff. Uh, life is very strange. You get what I'm saying? Hutzler and Oshikor, they, they they paid a salary. Okay? But nevertheless, um, he put out his thing. Now, um, there was, in Egyptology popped up in the late 1800s, and Harnack, these are Idol and Harnack, are famous names in which they can tell you, no, the Jews didn't steal everything, and Judaism doesn't come from stealing from Babylonia, it comes from stealing from Egypt. You understand? And, uh, uh, oh boy, the Kaiser uh, came to his lectures, Kaiser Wilhelm, and he made him a fawn, you know, he made him a nobleman. Oh boy, you, you, you're wrong. Uh, the notion, let me put it this way, they really were bothered by the fact that Christianity comes from Jewish sources. And they really were bothered by the fact that someone would have the chutzpah to say that Jesus was Jewish, even though they, they know it, but they know it and they don't know it. Um, I don't know if I mentioned last time, I think I did, when a guy painted that, Lieberman, when he painted that painting, or maybe I said in the other class, uh, Max Lieberman, a very famous uh, German-Jewish uh, po- uh, painter in the late 1800s, and there's a famous picture, Jesus at the uh, temple. And the way he f- first painted Jesus was a Jewish-looking kid. was not a handsome face, black hair and Jewish-looking face and all the... The whole Germany went nuts. You understand? And they went crazy. They said, how dare you paint our Savior as such a Jewish-looking uh, uh, you know, or something, you know, a face like this. And he had to redo it. He repainted it that Jesus is blonde and blue-eyed and so forth. Uh, no, you don't, you don't know how big a, a, a negative reaction it came, came after. I'm just trying to show you the climate in which we're dealing with. If you're Jewish in, in, in Germany or elsewhere in Europe in the 19th century, the intellectual climate you're getting from the newspapers, from the academia, all the way, very anti-Judaic as well as anti-Semitic. So it's, 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 uh, it's interesting. Now, um, what about the, the Frum? <laughs> what they said? Well, uh, Hildesheimer had a son-in-law who was a Ph.D., in um, Semitics, in Egyptology and the Babylonian stuff, uh, the ancient Near East, uh, Yaakov Barth, Professor Barth. And Hershians used to attack him. He's, uh, he's too, he, he went to college. But then, <laughs> in the 1890s, he was uh, called by every community to come and give a, uh, a speech in every Jewish community to explain why we're really right. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and he was a Shemr Shab, I mean, he was a from guy. Uh, it, 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 it was a funny situation. Um, the main person in, in Orthodox uh, Judaism in Germany, late 1800s, 1900s, was uh, Dozi Hoffman, okay, who was a, a very great person, and he was the, uh, the main student of Hildesheimer and the director of the Hildesheimer Seminary after or Hildesheimer died. So in other words, in the late 1890s and the early 1900s, he died in 1921. He was the one who directed the... the um, uh, he was a rector at the Russia Shiva, as you say, of the Hildesheimer Seminary, and uh, he was a great, very great person. First of all, he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. That's number one. And I'm a tremendous Talmud Chacham. Yeah, shouts and tubas and things like this. You know, the, the old school, they know shots by heart. And he was the type of person who could say this. A svar like you're saying doesn't exist in any tosis. <laughs> you know, like that. Um, and number two, he had a, a doctorate in Semitics when he was in Vienna. He learned in Vienna. And he knew history and, and, and classics and philology uh, very well, but once again, Peter Kochos, a guy like him, is running the seminary. He got to test the students. He did administrative work, and he 
uh, was the only German Jew with education to answer this. Every time there's some anti-Semitic speech or article, or somebody puts something out about the Bible or about the Talmud or the rest of it, he had to go write a whole article for the German non-Jewish newspaper in order to refute it. And so he had something like 700 articles on a whole wide variety of topics. And uh, there's a very wonderful, it should be translated in English, there's a very wonderful um, uh, by, um, obituary of him by this person, the next guy, uh, Rav Sa'ir. There's a big Moscow uh, rabbi, but he studied under him for a year. And, and when he, Hoffman died, he has an outstanding 20-page um, eulogy or something like that. And, uh, he, and, and he describes Hoffman very, very well. And uh, he says over here, that he was like a hero who has to always repel the assaults because <laughs> he's defending the fort by himself. You know what I'm so here you have to write a thing to say, no, it's not the Egyptians. We didn't steal from them, and it's not what the Babylonians did from them. And the way this reform rabbi wrote about the Marshal, you don't know what you're talking about. And this and what this guy of the anti-Semitic said over here, he says he got his facts wrong. And so a person like this is not going to have time also, nor was he built in this way, to do a grand narrative and tell us who we are. It's just the German Jews felt comfortable. They said, if they don't know the answer, ask Professor Hoffman. He knows everything. You see? Which was true, but it's different than having your own uh, person. So nobody, as I can tell you, had a, a grand vision. Here's a famous book from uh, Dorothy Hoffman. This is outstanding. This is very good. Uh, the Erste Mishnah. They used to publish these things in the annual reports of the Hillsheimer Ceremony. We can show you in very interesting ways how the Mishnah, if you're interested in the subject, actually went through a bunch of recensions and that uh, had a first edition and later on Yehonasi did a second edition. And there, you know, If you're into those kind of um, some academic uh, subjects, so he says, you know, here, Grant is wrong over here, and this guy's wrong over here, and this is how it really happened, and all the rest of it. Very polite, very academic. Uh, he was a gentleman, and, um, and he, like I say, he was an educated person. And he was part, you might say, of the educated elite of German Jewry. He was uh, at the top over there, but he's a member of the uh, club. But out of this will come no grand vision. Now, uh, what about the Lithuanian yeshiva world? As you say, the, 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 the yeshiva world. Um... Uh, well, what can I tell you? In the Yeshiva world, history is for losers. People don't know how to learn. That's the attitude you had once upon a time, still do. Or, or weirdos. It's one or the other. The people who's interested in history and not just Gomorrah, Gomorrah, Gomorrah time is either a loser or a weirdo. The two are, are not the same. A loser tells them how to learn. A weirdo, he knows how to learn just for some crazy reason. He's into history. You know what I'm saying? So, um, tonight, we're going to examine the greatest Yeshiva weirdo of all times. Without question. And that's uh, Isaac Lee Rabinowitz, whose famous book is Zerus Rishonim. He's a historian who uh, challenged the entire academic consensus and put it under the microscope, where it's a place it does not wish to be. You get it? The uh, academic world is very good at doing it like this. Let's discuss Schnittman over here. Let's all talk about him. <laughs> you see? Let's talk about this person over here. They say, no, let's talk about you. No, you don't talk about me. I'm the one who gets to talk about you. You see? And Rabinowitz says, no, no, let's talk about you. <laughs> You understand? Uh, does the emperor have any clothes? So that's number one. Number two, he wasn't a loser at all. You know to learn. He was born into the inner world of the rabbinic and the yeshiva aristocracy and wealth. But the, the echelon of society of which he came out in Lithuania is the peak over there. It's Turgdul Mokamechad. His, uh, his great-grandfather was Shmuel ben Avigdor, the last Rabbi Vilna, who had a huge fight. They appointed him. This is the old, this is the dirty uh, linen of the, of the 1800s. I'm sorry, the 18th century. Uh, you see, it was for 40 years the rabbi in Vilna. 
he was the son of a law of a rich guy. This guy stuffed his way that he should put his son for the, to be the Abed, you know, to be the chief rabbi of Vilna. The other people had other sons-in-law at that time, and they said no, and they tried to get him fired, and they uh, and and two factions formed, and families got divorced over it, and they fought this for forty years. The Vilna Gun was part of this. The Vilna Gun was on his side. Do I remember right? No, the Vilna Gun was on the other side. Yeah, and uh, uh, see, by the way, the Lubavitch got into it. It was a huge fight. They took it to the Geisha courts. It was a, it was a shandana karpa. It was such a it was such a mess, and it was such a scandal that when he died, and he wasn't old when he died. Um, they made a, a, a resolution building and no more chief rabbi. Perhaps some of you have heard of this, the effect of Chaim Meiser and all that. Uh, this is why, because it was a terrible uh, mess. The situation was dysfunctional in in a big way. I'll tell you again, you know, the Vilnagon was thrown into jail, this, 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 and, and the side, he, they lied to him. It's a whole huge mess. So this guy was his grandson, <laughs> great-grandson. And uh, the reason I have Mr. Epstein over here is this, this is a wonderful uh, story. You, you see the, the difference between of times and places. Uh, the charge against him was Shmuel ben Avigdor. They passed by his house 2 o'clock in the morning, and the lights were off. I mean, what are we paying you to do? What was a rub once upon a time? It's not a pastor. You don't pay any visits. You don't speak at funerals. You don't go to bar mitzvahs. You don't visit the sick. You don't even have to go to shul. So what are you supposed to do all day long? <laughs> we better see value of money. You should be learning 24-7. You get it? And uh, that's once upon a time. The reason I mentioned Israel Epstein, who was the head of the Jews College, is a famous story in England when he fir- had his first cellar uh, somewhere in the north of England. I forget where. Uh, it was Millsborough, yeah. Yeah, at Millsboro, yeah. He knows it's from there. And uh, it's a famous story that the congregation who got him, he was a great scholar, the congregation who got him, they said, you have a big electricity bill. This is 1920. What's that electricity? So he says, I was staying up late at night and learning. So he says, we thought when we secured your services, we were getting a fully qualified clergyman. <laughs> you see? So it's always a juxtapose. Anyhow, so there's Balabatim and Vilna in 1750. Okay. Now, um, anyhow, uh, his grandfather, by the way, uh, started the Velazhin Yeshiva. By that I mean he gave the money to found the Velazhin Yeshiva. So he was buddies with Chaim Velazhiner. This was an inner circle. You get it? Um, his parents, grandparents, were members of what you call the wealthy merchant uh, class of Russian Jewry. They, they had them. There was an elite. These are the guys who had government contracts, they supplied the army, and then with the, with the railroads. And so there were people, you think, you think you're thinking of Fiddler on the Roof. No, I'm talking about the person who's a millionaire. He looks like somebody in Fiddler on the Roof. You see? Um, and this was, as I say before, a very uh, a classy sort of situation. Uh, his father died when he was young, but he was 13 years old. He went to Volozhin. 13 years old, he was one of the Eloys over there. And he gets in right because he's related to everybody, because his grandfather paid for the place and all this sort of thing. So right off the bat, he is buddy with the whole gang. In fact, Chaim Volozhin and Chaim Salvation him were, uh, were uh, Harusas. And uh, he got him to, later on, uh, this guy, it's a guy with a lady, gets Chaim Brisket a job to teach in, in Volozhin. <laughs> right? So, I mean, you don't get more inner circle of this than, than, than that sort of thing. Um, and in Volozhin, by the way, uh, this is not an issue. Like, you learn the whole shots. You know, it's a very large uh, way of looking at things. But after a year or two, he returns to Vilna and he studies on his own and gets married at the young age as people did at that time. Um, He's an original guy. He's not a product of any system. 
is the real Eloy, that is, is very brilliant. Just to give you what I'm talking, he had a habit every Friday, uh, every Friday, uh, about six hours straight learning, uh, either Mishnah Malk or the Nodah Behuda. This is an interesting, so these are difficult swarms that I just mentioned. Okay? At the age of 20, already well married, they make him a, a member of the board of directors of Lashon Yeshiva, uh, which he remains uh, for the rest of his life. He is, as I said before, from the inner circle, he's uh, bosom buddies with people like Chaim Salvechik. He goes into the tea business, all right, which is something a lot of Jews went into if you were a certain class, part of the network of Vesatsky, right? You only know Vesatsky from Israel, okay? Vesatsky comes out, this guy never went to college, never went to school, he went to Yeshiva for a little bit. He's one of these guys that spends a few years in Yeshiva then says, the business world will work for me. And he, by the time he finished, he controlled one-third of the tea in Russia. You see, yeah, so that was his market share. A third of the tea in Russia. He was a czar of the tea. And he had international, uh, uh, you know, networks and things like this. I remember he uh, conquered, he, he, he controlled all the tea from Ceylon and things like that. And I'm talking about the 19th century when we're talking ruthless business competition. He's like, he would be very well in the same bed with Omer Rockefeller. You understand? You, you, you undercut the competition, you slice their throats, this and that and the other. I mean, that, that, that's how it was done in those days. Uh, because it was the 19th century and it was uh, pure capitalism. And uh, so he had networks of, of agents all over the place, around the world. See, this guy, got, I think he got part of that whole business. Although, to be perfectly honest, I think his wife is the one who ran the uh, business, but he participated. And uh, <laughs> it's not unheard of. <laughs> okay? Um, anyhow, the point is that this is a guy who's not a loser, as I said before. Maybe a weirdo who's not a loser. And uh, he was a macher in the inner uh, politics of Russian Jewry. Uh, as you, if you know anything at all, there was a big fight about esrogs, esrogim, and they should use the Corfu esrog, and uh, that one was more kosher, it seemed to be, than uh, the esrogs that are being uh, imported from Israel. On the other hand, the Chovetzian, they say you should support the Israeli esrog to get a Jewish economy off the boat, and then the Greeks who lived in Corfu made a pogrom, you understand, and then they got together to jack up the price, and a group of activists led by this guy, you said, they go to Rizal Khan Inspector, who was the main rabbi in Russia, so he gets, everybody listen to you, put a ban on the non-Israeli esrogs, right? Put a ban on the Corfu esrogs. And a lot of the other rabbis who were on the take, they said, no, the Corfu esrogs are better, and it was a big contest of wills, but the public followed Rizal Khan and they busted the, uh, the Greeks, you understand? Who, who re- reacted by making another pogrom. So I'm just trying to show you, this is the politics of once upon a time. So, uh, by the time you get to the 1870s, 1880s, Rabbi Shol Salanter, Rechaim Mezhi Grzynski, Yitzhak Isaac Alevi Rebbe, which I'm talking about over here, um, other people like that, uh, Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz, who's the, um, the, the secretary of Israel Inspector. These are names that were very famous in, in once upon a time. This is the circle of Russian Orthodox Judaism. When I use the word Orthodox Judaism, that's a very important term that I'm going to be using tonight. Orthodox doesn't mean traditional. Traditional means you just keep up the same ways without considering your position in the modern world vis-a-vis other groups. Orthodox is self-conscious. Orthodoxy involves a, a sense of political self-consciousness. Orthodox means I only support other Orthodox. I'm opposed to the non-Orthodox. I have my own vision, my own way of doing so. I don't let somebody else tell me what my present and past is. I have my own. And, uh, and I see what others are... Do you ever think it's all, it's all conscious raising and self-perception? I see that these schools, even though they say they're traditional, are really not representing my interests. 
very few from Jews felt that way. Um, they were afraid to talk about it, including Rizal Inspector and people like that, because they don't want to provoke, what should I say, the rich and powerful people of the traditionalist community who weren't so religious. But little by little, this is forming in Israel Salamta, Yitzhak Alevi Lipschitz, our, our, our basic constituent members of the formation of this identity, which today is called Haredi. Okay? Um, it goes back literally to that time. Uh, Halevi, as I say before, uh, he, he and uh, the young kind of, this is the Secretary of Israel Inspector who writes a very famous uh, history book of his own, of his own times, in terms of this har- very uh, uh, strongly delineated orthodoxy and anti Haskalah. Chaim Rezegrzynski, of course, you know about it, became famous as a big rabbi later on. These are people in their young years are part of this movement in which you see the masses don't get it right. How can somebody be a from Jew and vote for a non-from party? And then, you know, how can you give your money to the JNF when they're using it for this and this and this? And all these sorts of ideas are not, uh, are not new. Halevi, uh, our, our hero here, the, the guy was thinking, I tell you, you Halevi, he's very connected with the, with the fights for Shechita. There's a famous guy, Dr. Dembo, who was a, a professor of uh, animal biology, and he gets it, it was a famous person this day, and wasn't religious, and he got to him and got him to write the books and deliver the uh, addresses at the scientific societies in Europe to defend Shechita, that it's not uh, bad. So here's a guy from uh, 1867, 1895 or so, about 30 years, who lives a very self-satisfied, perfect life of his own. Um, he's well-to-do, successful in business, he learns, um, he dabbles in all kind of uh, affairs. He's a macher in the. Uh, he's really like the mover behind Shaker in the Kabbalah Yeshiva. You know, life is good for him, so to speak. But he is aware of the disintegration of traditionalism occurring among the mass Jews of the Russian Empire and of the constant hemorrhaging from the ranks of the from, including from the ranks of the Bnei Yeshiva. Okay, let's get this straight. This is the era in which uh, Bialik, Berdachevsky, and others were in the Yeshiva and left. You follow? They, they, they move past that, and they see the she represents a retrograde, a fundamentalist, and backwards and incorrect understanding of Judaism. Now, uh, and, and, and the Yeshiva don't know how to do anything about this. Now, some of this is due to some materialism, okay? Desire to get a job. After all, the Yeshiva background, you're not going to do too well. But if you uh, become non-religious, especially if you do like Colson over here, it becomes a <laughs> He said, well, they asked him, why did you convert? You understand? Know he became a big professor. I spoke about it last summer. And he said, best is designed a professor in Pittsburgh be a Malabad and Aisha You know, I, I, I get that. But the, that, that's one reason. But some of this is due to historicism, to the new narratives. Now, there's many of the Yeshiva guys, like today, they sneak on the blogs or something like that. At that time, you would secretly regret and Weiss and Frankel and Rappaport and this and that and the other. And the Mashkir job in the Yeshiva is to go raid the books. So it becomes like, like the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, yeah, yeah. You see? Um, when you read these books, the Chazal, the Tanayim Amroim, appear in a very different light than that taught in the Yeshivas. And so you start to say, who's right? This obsesses Yitzhak Isaac Halevi Rabinowitz. He was going crazy over this. He reads all the books, because he's a veteran reader, and he was passionate, I told you he's a weirdo, he's passionately interested in history, and his blood boils. He is particularly angry at what he perceives as the stupid mistakes the deliberate falsifications and the clear anti-from ideological bias under the mask of scientific objectivity. Okay? In other words, what they're saying is wrong and they're fooling everybody, taking advantage of the ignorance of the public to foist their agenda over here and all these dumb yeshiva guys, others who naturally don't know what I know, are falling for it like flies. But for 30 years, 
he has no life, as I said before. And so all he does, he writes an occasional article about this in the from newspaper datim Halavanon out of Paris. But then in the mid 1890s, his business collapses. It's the 19th century. There's no insurance. There's no safety net. Okay, when you go bust, you go bust. He's bankrupt. Oilaitabusha, a guy who was a respected businessman, all of a sudden has to flee. He leaves Russia never to return. He might get arrested. Whoa, not so good. And so he would like to start business up again. And he wants to pay off his creditors. And for the rest of his life, I'm to, I'll give him credit, for the rest of his life he's trying to save money, he paid off what he could from, from, from the creditors. But he's in his 50s. As I know, though, too late to start again. You understand? And anyway, he says, perhaps it's a sign from heaven to abandon business and devote himself to his true passion, which is Jewish history. Just look in the mirror and admit who you are. You see? He's been thinking about this subject for decades. His ideas have ripened and matured, and he dreams of being the Haredi Gretz, <laughs> or the Haredi Weiss. He dreams of publishing his own grand narrative, a multi-volume Jewish history. His dream is that his book will be bestsellers, and the sale of profits will enable him to pay off his creditors. He wanders through the European capitals in 1895, 6, 7, those eight, uh, in Pressburg and Berlin, here and there, and the other, London, Paris, writing feverishly as he moves from town to town. In Frankfurt, he is befriended by Rabbi Horowitz. Uh-oh. <laughs> Do you know the German uh, politics of the 19th century? Uh, Frankfurt, there's Frum and then there's Frum. There's the Orthodox and then there's the Orthodox. And the Orthodox hold the Orthodox are not Orthodox. Okay? <laughs> Basically, you will perhaps recall that Serenity Raphael Hirsch said you have to have Austrit. You have to leave the uh, Grossgemeinde. You have to leave the general community and start a separate Orthodox community with its own synagogue, its own JCC, its own everything. Oh, about a cautious cemetery, everything. But there were many Orthodox Jews that didn't agree with Hirsch, uh, believe it or not. And there were many Orthodox Jews that like this. I still want to be a member of the community. I don't have to become reformed. But you, you know, and the community itself, because they were scared of Hirsch, they said, we'll make you concessions. If you want to have an Orthodox shul and all that, you can have your own vodakashas, we'll pay for the mikvah. And so, in Frankfurt, there's two of everything. It's two mikvahs, it's two Orthodox shuls, it's two Orthodox schools, it's two JCCs, I mean, you know, what else is left? You know, there's two, two sports teams, two, two everything, okay? And my goodness, if you go to the wrong school, or your cousin goes to the wrong thing, you know, I mean, let, let, me, let me make this very clear. If somebody from Hirsch's community had a cousin having a wedding in the, in the Orthodox shul of the girls' community, you don't go to the wedding. You see? They'll, they'll stay outside, and when the chassan call comes out, they'll wish the mazel tov. True or not? They, 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 you, you don't go in. I'll say this again. There's Orthodox to Orthodox. Okay? So, uh, what happened was that Hirsch said after 1876 that everybody has to leave the general community to seed. Uh, not many did, and he was real angry at those who did not. Those who didn't formed their own Orthodox community within the, like we would say today, under the Associated, you see, who gave them all the money, and they took Marcus Horowitz, Mordecai Horowitz, to be the rabbi of the Orthodox community, which drove Hirsch crazy. He says, this guy's a total sinner uh, because he's participating in the, you know, uh, in the Reformed community and all the rest. He's saying it's the Orthodox. And, uh, and he was a student of Hildesheimer, by the way. So Hirsch said to Hildesheimer, said, how can you let your student do this? And Hilsheim was very close with him. Doesn't get better than this. And so Hilsheim writes him a letter. He says, I think you should, you should not take this job. But he says, I'm taking this job. Okay. So how can you say okay? You know? And so it was very bitter. Okay? Extremely bitter. And now Halevi 
who's just a firm guy running away from Russia, trying to write a history book, walks into Frankfurt in the 1890s, the wrong time to be, and if you, you, know, if you go to Schoenbrady, you can't go to Gouda, you, you can't go to here, you know, so it's like that. But, um, but Mordechai Horowitz, who, uh, was, as they say before, a student, Breuer and Horowitz have the opposite shoals, okay? No, he's one shoal, he's the other shoal, and he declares this shoal trace, and that's how life is lived. So, um, anyhow, uh, Horowitz likes him, he's like this, I'll give you a letter of introduction to the chief rabbi of, Paris, of, of France, Sardar Khan, and he has connections with the Alliance Israelite Universelle. Um, you can see how uh, assimilated or acculturated the French were. He looks like a, a priest. Because, in other words, you, wait a second, he was a Shammar Shabbos, but you won't get no respect. This is Rodney Dangerfield. You're not going to gain respect if you look like a, an Orthodox rabbi. You know, you, the, the Jews of France want him to dress like this. Get it? So, uh, this is Sardar Khan. And uh, as they say before, he's the chief rabbi of France, uh, the last chief rabbi of France, actually, the, in, in the formal sense. And um, he has connected with Rothschild and the Alliance uh, Israelite Universelle, which was uh, the Kol Yisrael Chaverim. This was a big organization of the French uh, millionaires. And, he, and, and basically, Horowitz, the old boy network, he says, you know, this guy's got interesting history ideas, uh, pay for his book. You understand? Uh, finance the book. Uh, Khan uh, does so. And believe it or not, this ultra-Orthodox book is published by the Reform, Reform Jews of France. They don't know what they're dealing with over here. Um, when they realize this is Haredi stuff, they're shocked. And that's how then they withdraw the money after the first volume. Eventually, Horowitz finds them. He says, I, he, said, we, he says, a guy like you is gifted. You're a little weird, but he's gifted. All great people are weird. He says, you're a little gifted. We've got to find you the nice teller. And so he looks all over Germany. Horowitz, who was the rabbi in Frankfurt. And he found them a very nice little situation of a shtibla, a close. In, in Hamburg, in which a rich guy had died a, a hundred years before and left a Stiftung, as they call it, which means uh, Karen Kayemis, you know, a, uh, what's the right word? What's the word? Endowment. endowment. That's a good word, yeah. An endowment. And uh, basically, it's a small show with a decent salary. And, and your only job in the week is not even to attend services, just to give a class two hours on, on Shabbos. So that's a, that's a tailor-made. You get it? And that's what he, and that's what he did um, that's what he did for the rest of his life. Last 10, 12 years of his life before he died. So that's when he had time to write. He had a little stellar in Germany, this and that and the other. He's not in, in fact, he'd even dive in there every day, to tell you the truth. But it wasn't necessary, you get it? The local people ran their own minion, and, uh, you know, like I say, once a week he gives a, or twice a week he gave a Gamar class, which is all attended. And so, so in, in a certain sense, it's a sinecure, you know, it's a, it, it's a perfect situation for him. Uh, before that, he spent two years in Bad Hamburg. If you know what that is, it's not Hamburg. Hamburg is up in the north. Bad Hamburg is next to Frankfurt. Now it's part of Frankfurt. And uh, therefore, he, and he spends his summers there. So here's a guy who has to spend, who danced on eggs. Because this is Germany in the early 20th century, and you want to try to get along with both sets of Orthodox Jews. And that wasn't, inter- that wasn't easy once upon a time. You see? Because by the time I'm talking about, there's the Breuer wing, that's one group. And then there's the Hildesheimer, Hoffman, and all that wing is the other group. And oh my goodness, you know, it's a, it's a cold war. You understand? There are people here who can tell you, right, that it, 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 it's a cold war. And so uh, this, is, this is where he uh, lives, I say, for the rest of his life. He's a Litvak living in, uh, in Germany, and now he can sit and write. And he does. And during these years, he publishes his multi volume, little by little, uh, thing on the Koldorzer Shonim. History of, Jewish, history of Jewish literature and, and, and so on and so forth uh, he doesn't give up politics 
He's not just a little rabbi, you know, in the Hertzberg or something like that, a little, little, uh, little shtibel. He's It's a guy who, by his own personal life and his Rolodex, as we would say today, knows everybody. Okay? Uh, he's almost like a certain Forrest Gump. I mean, he's been everywhere, and he knows that he's friends with the Gary Rebbe, he's friends with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he's friends with this one, he's friends with that one. Uh, no, you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. Um, from his small stebel, he corresponds with all the gedolim around the world. So you wouldn't think you go to Hamburg, you see the big synagogue and all the rest of it, but those rabbis are people that you've never heard of. Has anybody heard of Mordechai Amram Hirsch? Have you ever heard this name? Yeah. And, and yet, the, the, the guy who's got a small shul, a cloise in some somewhere, uh, because of who he is, the, the letters are coming every day from Chaim Brisker, Chaim Meiser, from this rabbi, from that, all, all, all over the world. Now, um, at that time, the big challenge in the first part of the uh, first decade of the, the 20th century, cultural Zionism. Uh, Herzl, Herzl died in 1904 trying to get Israel from the uh, world and he didn't succeed but then the Zionist movement was predominantly taken over by cultural Zionism of Achanaam which wants to uh, which they avow I mean, they're not hiding this they say they want to transform Judaism from a religion to a nationality and we want to conquer the Kehilot as they put it and we want to have free elections all over Europe and, and have our guys take over the communities and defund the Orthodox schools and exchange them for, what, I don't know, something to the left of Betisola. No, I'm not meaning it. In other words, uh, Betisola is a religious school. Uh, uh, cultural Zionist schools. Uh, I can't even think of an analogy in America. But you understand, in other words, where you'll see that Judaism is a nationality and not a religion, that the Bible is a myth, it's our national myth, but it's a, it's a myth, and everything that goes along with that. Okay? So uh, the Orthodox went crazy over this, and uh, the, the religious Zionists had a real problem because the Mizrahi, uh, they said like this: this should not be the official policy of the Zionist movement. Uh, every group should, have, should, 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 should do its own thing. The Mizrahi was outvoted. So I want you to understand: in the Zionist conferences of uh, 97, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, um, the Mizrahi would say that we want the Zionist movement to be on record that we, uh, we, we take no official position in regard to religion. And they were outvoted. <laughs> you see? They said, no, we do take a position in regard to religion, which is why people like Halevi and the others said, then why don't you leave the Mizrahi? Why, then why don't you secede from the Zionist movement since you've been rejected? And out of all this commotion comes the Agoda. All right? And uh, basically, Yitzhak Isaac Halevi Rabinowitz, this uh, guy, the Stiebel in Hamburg, is the founder of the Agoda Sisro. He's the one who made it. And he did it because only he could do it because he was personal friends with... Uh, all the big machers. And so he could say to Chaim Briska, he said, come and join this thing, uh, and don't give me any baloney, you and I go back, and so forth. And he could write to the Ger Rebbe, we have the letters. And he's all, Benon Shal Kedoshim, that you're the, uh, the big deal over there, you're the uh, person who is, who is um, uh, you know, running so many Hasidim, and you should join this, and he'll say to the Germans, he had a real problem with the German Jewish politics, because he wants to invite Horowitz, but then Breuer won't come, you write Breuer, this won't come. But he's trying his best to put together an independent Orthodox organization for the world. And uh, it should be, as you can see, all the way. He knew all these people and more. And because he was an indefatigable correspondent and he had time on his hands, so he got them all together in 1912 at Katowice. Perhaps you heard of this. They found that the goodness role should be a competition for the Zionist movement. You guys aren't the world movement of Jewry. We are. Right? You guys don't represent the Gedolia Torah. They represent the Jews. This is the argument. It didn't really get off the ground, but this is the idea uh, behind it. Only he could have pulled it off. 
he energizes German Jewish Orthodoxy, uh, at least a portion of it. Basically, he says German Jewish Orthodoxy is a frozen. You understand? It's just they're, they're stuck with Hirsch, and uh, the whole idea is just to be not reform, and there's nothing positive in it, and we have to go and, and re engage the Jewish youth with Jewish sources and, uh, you know, come with new and fresh approaches over here. Um, he, he's close with uh, the Rosenheim was younger at that time, and uh, what he called and Rod Breuer and others, and he's saying you need to, um, you know, uh, discover our past. We have to engage much more closely with Jewish knowledge. Um, we need youth groups. Uh, he had a whole kind of a, he was, he was one of these, uh, as I say, cock levels. In this situation, that's when his books are published. So he obviously didn't mind being in the middle of controversy, and it stirred his creative juices. Now, he was, the books that are published are a very typical product of the yeshiva world. They're full of brilliant insights. They're horrible writing and worse editing. Okay? Uh, he needed a big time, he needed an editor big time. This is a, this is a comment, everybody knows this. He needed, it just opened in one, one page, you'll see. He says he needed an editor big time, he never got an editor. You understand? And, and, and everything is fakrumt. So he knows he publishes everything backwards, in other words, the first volume is the last. You get it? There's the gonim, and then it goes backwards. And not only that, in each volume he works backwards. Okay? I, I'll tell you again, he was a weird guy. Uh, he was brilliant, no, but, he, but, 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 but he didn't have a secular education, and he didn't have this gift of writing, as, as we understand it in the Western sense. Okay? Uh, the book is totally, which is, I say, several volumes. Many were published after his death from his notes. Uh, this is a, a book that's written for people holding and learning. In other words, already familiar with the writings of Gratz and Weiss and Rapport and Frankel and Geiger. He assumes you already read all this kind of stuff. There are long passages in the books uh, consisting of quoting and then strongly criticizing the works of these historians. That's basically a good part of the Dozer Shunem. Hachachem Gratz said this and this and this. Hey, and you know you're talking about looking this way. You see, you're all wrong, you know, like that. He's the first and the greatest of the Haredi Maskilim. Can I use that term? Right. Uh, he's definitely a Haredi in his whole outlook and his revolutionary and radical look towards what we call orthodoxy. And he is a total Moscow because he read all these books from these guys. He's writing in Hebrew. Uh, he's coming totally out of this milieu. Although he, I don't even know if he would reject that, that term. Uh, he attacks Gretz and Weiss and all the others et al. by name. He handles them roughly. He accuses them of superficial knowledge of the subject and deliberate inaccuracies and misrepresentations. The problem is, he then proceeds to prove his point. <laughs> you get it? He, you know, he, he wrote very undiplomatically, uh, but he's, he's got one zinger after another. Oh, frankly, he said this and this. Have you ever seen this and this thing over here? It's that, it just shows the whole thing is totally wrong. A lot of times he's actually right. You understand? So it's a, it's a little bit embarrassing. His biting criticisms were damaging to many reputations. But after he finished, these guys didn't look so chashev anymore. You understand? Now, the students of these historians were still alive. And they, after all, they recently died, all these people, at the time he's writing this in the early 20th century. And his students, as they were furious, how can you criticize these great men? And he says, they're not great men. Is it? The students say, no, these historians have liberated us from legends and fairy tales using scientific and academic methods. They have told us how the past really was. And he says, no, they've not. They've abused the academic voice to put out shoddy and slipshod scholarship. Not only that, they have misused the academic voice to push what is really a reformed theological agenda, but they won't say so, which makes them 
dishonest and despicable. I say who, what my agenda is. They do not. They are taking advantage of the ignorance of the public. Like Abraham Lincoln said. <laughs> the students, yeah. He says, Lincoln said you can fool all the people sometimes, some people all the time. You just can't fool everybody all the time. And I'm not even sure about that. Now, um, the students of these guys say, why are you always so ad hominem? You call people by their name, it's insulting. And he said, why is it okay for Gretchen Weiss to insult Hillel or Shammai or Arashi, but it's not all right for me to insult Gretchen Weiss? <laughs> In addition, so boy, oh boy, I mean, you know, when you read his book, somebody once said, it's like, you know, he walks into the bar, he takes a bottle, breaks it, and let's go. You understand? That's, that's it. It's, it's, it's taking polemics to an extreme. Now, um, in addition to his criticisms of the historians, he came up with dozens of original insights of his own. Some brilliant, some far-fetched. That's the way it's going to be with somebody who's, you know, he's a lot of original thoughts over there in the period of history he covers, which is the period of the Second Temple and the Talmud. That's it, you know, up to the Gonim. The period of the, what do you say, the Torah of al um, I'll give you two or three examples of what I'm talking about, because obviously I can't go into great detail about this. Uh, one is his very original take on the Sadducees and the Sadducim. Okay? Um, nobody knows who the Pharisees and Sadducees and these things really are. We have a passage in Josephus, we have a couple of places in the Talmud, very little, we have a couple of passages in the New Testament, and that's it. From that little business, everyone's trying to make a challenge of their own and try to come up with it. Gretz had his version, this one had his version. Uh, the Christians definitely have their versions of this. Uh, he, I remember, it says that uh, if you read Josephus very closely, and he does, he does. So you'll find that uh, in the middle of the Second Temple period, when the Israel's ruled by the Ptolemies, a certain class of muxim, as they call them, tax gatherers, uh, latched on to the Ptolemaic Jews, Ptolemaic uh, government, and then they used their power to set up an independent mafia base, and then they're the ones who eventually morphed into the Hellenists, and they caused the Maccabean revolt, and they were the ones fighting the bloody battles with the Maccabees, and then when the Maccabees triumphed and established a, a Jewish state, uh, so what happened to these guys? They reinvent themselves as the Sadducees because they won't go along with the Orthodox and they represent a power base and they battle it out with the Pharisees all throughout the period of the Hasmonean state. All this is told in great detail. Um, and uh, th therefore, they, they, that's why they always present a kind of a secular nationalism because they're against the Sanhedrin, which is run by, for a while they control the Sanhedrin and then the Pharisees through politics regain control the Sanhedrin and it's a whole thing back and forth and that's where all the kings are. Then, of course, the Romans come in and, uh, and they're part of the ones inviting the Romans in and then they dominate the politics to the great detriment of the Jewish people because the voice of the masses and the Pharisees cannot be communicated to the Romans so it was one grand miscommunication there's a tragedy of Roman-Jewish uh, relations that could have been good after all, what do we, the weather from Jews care of the Roman Empire? So it'd be a rule of the Roman Empire pay taxes, but just leave it alone, you know and it didn't turn out that way and then uh, through various means the Herod uh, comes over, they have one mafia versus another. You know, only in the movies do all the bad guys get together in real life. A kills B. And so Herod wiped out the Sadducees to a, as much as he could, and by the time he died, you have two mafias running around in Israel, the Herodian-type mafias, which is one set of, of nobles and powerful people, the Sadducee ones left over. This plays it out. He, he plays it out in great detail down to the Chorm Beit Hamikdash. You know, when you have the different groups that were battling in Jerusalem in the civil war, the bloody civil wars that Josephus talks about, which one was the Sadducee ones, which one was the other ones, and they messed, uh, they messed this over tremendously. And then when the temple is destroyed, they disappear from history. 
And the reason is, he says, they never had any religious principles at all. It's total opportunism. This is a major theory of his. It's total opportunism. They just reinvented themselves for political reasons all the time. They didn't believe in anything except for power and money. And consequently, when the Jewish state ceased to exist, when the temple was literally flattened, when Jerusalem was literally, literally flattened, when Judea became nothing but a province, and there was no more fun in being Jewish anymore, they disappeared and went to Rome and other places, and we never saw them again. Right? Which actually means that the Corbin, he writes this, he said, Corbin was a terrible thing, but also a good thing. We got rid of all the junk, because they were only there for good time, Charlie. It's a very interesting kind of, Now, there are parts of it you can critique, parts you accept, but I'm just trying to show you, not some yachts over here, he's got a whole worked out um, of this over here. He has a whole take on the book of Maccabees and the fact that the oil, miracle of the oil is not there. He says, if you read the book of Maccabees, which in the Apocrypha, especially the first book of Maccabees, everybody's saying, how come they talk about all the miracles? They leave out the, the oil being eight days. And he says, if you read closely, it takes up to the time of John Herkinus. We know John Herkinus was the one who converted to the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't like their Drabonans, because, you know, because they're fighting against the Pharisees who are, who are identical, as he said, with the Drabonans. I hope I'm not confusing you too much. And, uh, and therefore, they, they wanted Hanukkah to be a national holiday because it was a victory to, of the Hasmonean dynasty, which is John Herkinus's thing, but they didn't want to play the part, of, which would explain why they have the rabbinic ordinance of making a menorah and lighting the candles. So again, he, you know, he thought it through. He worked it out. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. But he's got something to say on the subject. He uh, sometimes takes on all the classic historians. He read all the Greek and Latin stuff. And there's a whole big thing that I mentioned uh, last summer, I think it was, or two summers ago, I don't remember anymore, about this huge rebellion that broke out in the time of Trajan, all throughout the Roman Empire, perhaps you recall. And uh, oh my goodness, the Roman and Greek writers have a whole business where they say, it's like a movie, you know, like Spartacus. They captured the Romans and made them fight each other to the death. You know, and the Jews ate their entrails and made belts out of the dead bodies that are going on. He said, they're all lying. He, could try to, he tries to prove that all the uh, Greek and Roman historians, particularly Roman historians that are talking about it, are full of baloney. The whole thing never happened. There was a pogrom against the Jews in order to justify it, like you have in Europe today. They'll say the Jews are committing the aggression and they make all the you, you know, In other words, uh, Weiss, Agret, you idiot, you believe that stuff? You understand? Is, is there anyone other than those three historians that say it? Do you have any evidence outside of them that do so? And by the way, he doesn't mind taking on the Goyim. Theodor Momsen and the others, these are the big German historians at that time. So Momsen, you make a whole uh, uh, a book about the Jews in the Roman Empire. What exactly is your sources? Are they not these three guys? And those these three guys, you can see, are contradicting each other in the middle. You know what I'm saying? He was a rough customer. Okay, now, um, there's a whole lot more. Uh, as I said before, he, he's, he has a, a love-hate relationship with Josephus. Um, he reads Josephus very thoroughly, and he darshans him, you know, like the Gemara or something like that, uh, but he hates Josephus. But on the other hand, as I pointed out a couple weeks ago, Josephus has all the information. You see? And so what he does is he will selectively, you know, he'll, he'll say like this, even within your own writings, I can show how you're inconsistent, just to give you off the top of my head. You're always saying, you're, you never talk about the Pharisees, you always talk about the Sadducees. That's what Josephus does. And, uh, and the Hasmonean kings, all the others. And yet you yourself admit that the Pharisees are the ones that are admired by the masses. Wherever they go, crowds form around them. They command the confidence of the public. Uh, they, they, you know, the, during their administration, things were pacific. Shlomo Alexander was a Jewish queen who, was, he says, was terrible. She was, under the, she was under the thumb of the Pharisees. It was disgraceful. But then he goes on to say, during her reign, they balanced the budget for the first time. They doubled the army. They cut the tax in half. They had peace and prosperity. All the neighbors were surrounding them, and the country was at peace. This is the terrible result. <laughs> no, you, you're, you're full of baloney yourself. So, no, he doesn't mind saying the emperor has no clothes. Okay? Um, 
he has, as I say before, he has a, a, a way of brilliantly and fascinating, tendentiously, brilliantly and fascinatingly juxtaposing Josephus and the Talmud. So this is very interesting because he read both of them thoroughly. The Gemara he knew from a baby, but Josephus he also inside out. And you see, Josephus is this, but if you read the Gemara and you understand this and this is happening, this and this is done, then you see Josephus here is full of baloney, and this is what really happened. On the other hand, over here he's not full of baloney, and this really did happen. So he really did a lot of very interesting things. He, he says, Josephus never mentions the rabbis. That's just interesting. He said, what, they weren't there? You yourself admitted, I just told you before, that the, that the masses attest to the virtue of the Pharisees that followed them around like, like a shepherd. You understand? So where are they in your book? You hate the rabbis. Okay, so come out and, and tell us who you really are. Um, he really blasts Josephus' disgraceful whitewashing of Herod. Okay? Even go to Israel today, he says, oh, Herod was great. He built the Kotel, he built the Marzapela, built the other place. All the guys who call him Herod the Great. And, and I'll leave it to wait a second. <laughs> First of all, who's Josephus coming out of? The book that was written by Herod's uh, secretary, Nicholas Damascus. Second of all, even in that book, they admit that he massacred people, he murdered everybody right and left, and when he died, the Jewish people begged on their knees to the Romans, don't give us another Herod, even better, you should rule us. You get it? And this is the person you call the great. I'm just, you know, throwing out a few here and there. Uh, he is really rocking and rolling when you get to the Corbin Beis Amigas that we talk about Josephus. Okay? Where Josephus is so detailed, and he follows and dissects it and takes it apart, all the different things over there. And basically, Josephus says he was a hero, and John of Giskel, Yochan Gushkalov, was the villain. And Halevi says, No, it's the opposite. You're covering up your own uh, crimes, and you think you can do it, but I can tell from what you write that it's not true. And the other guy was a hero, and, and you're the villain, and I can even prove it. When the Romans have their final triumph, and they execute the uh, leaders of the rebellion, John of Giscal is, is, is uh, reprieved. In other words, he's, he's given a life sentence. You understand? He was allowed to live in Rome as a private citizen. Because the Romans knew there really was a good guy, and that everything you're saying is a lie, just trying to cover your own tracks. You see? Um, and, and the big villain is Agrippa II, as he says over there, who Josephus admits was the one who was paying him while he was writing the book. You know, that's his uh, style. Halevi, I want to get this straight. Halevi was a real frummy but he closely read the apocryphal literature, all of it. He closely read all the classics, Greek and Roman. He did his homework. You hear what I said? He read all the Greek and Roman authors. He closely read the New Testament, which he quotes them a lot. He closely read Eusebius and the Church Fathers. You'll be surprised. You know, and he, uh, I'll tell you again. You know, he will, you surprised he what he comes up with. Now, he uses them for his purposes. But nevertheless, he read all the literature that was written at that time in the ancient world. He's an historian. Now, he is self-taught, but he's an historian. I'll give you an example. He's into Josephus. He doesn't have any time for Yosefon. He doesn't mention him. Because Yosefon, as I told you before, is, is a fake. Whatever the firm world says. He says, he's into the book of Maccabees and the Apocrypha. He never quotes. It deals with the Megillus Antiochus, which is what the firm world says is a myth. It's a fake. You see? So he deals with what's really out there. He implicitly criticizes Roshonim, who believed in those works. You understand? He indirectly, very indirectly, criticized Rashi and Tosas for observations. There's a famous place in Yavamas where Tosas has some kasha about Herod, and they go like four Terutsim. And one of the answers is Herod did Teshuvah before he died. And he said, I guess, you know, without mentioning Tosas, he says, Do you know who Herod was? And do you know how he died? Actually, the, the Talmud says that the day Herod died was a national holiday, the 6th of uh, El. You get it? It was a national holiday. So uh, don't tell me he didn't, he didn't any repentance before he died. Um, so he's quite a, qu quite, quite a guy. By the way, Rabbi Breuer, uh, when he was young, 
1920, wrote an article criticizing Halevi, this guy, because, oh, you criticize Rashi. <laughs> you see? Now, um, his critics, when the books came out, uh, tried to diss him on little things. You don't know Greek and Latin. But it wasn't true. He learned Greek and Latin. Uh, but that's, that's one of those little nitpicking things. Now, uh, in, instead of dealing with the argument, uh, you're ugly. <laughs> you know, your shoes don't shine. You follow? Uh, like Hirsch, uh, Halevi, Yitzhak Halevi Rabinowitz, hates portraits of the Chazal. Right? He can't stand when Weiss and Gretz are there, because they're making it up. The canons of historicity don't change. What do you have to, to tell me about your portrait? I'll just give you one example, again, off the top of my head. They all talk about what a, what a mean guy Shammai was because he chased the guy out when he wanted to become converted in one thing. But what about the fact that the Pirkei Elvis says that the famous slogan of Shammai was heavy Mechabalists call on the Savior upon the office? What do you do with that? So how do you know this one tells you who the real Shammai is versus this one, for example? You know, think, now these are fair questions. I say they're fair questions because there doesn't exist any information about Shammai other than these three or four, ten, whatever statements in the Talmud. So don't go and tell me, oh, I'm going to see the public doesn't know this. The public says, if Professor Gretz said this and this, he must have access to something or other, uh, you know, all the out there. But it's not true. <laughs> you see? And therefore he said like this, the emperor has no clothes and he's just taking advantage of the fact that in the land of the blind, the one I'm menacing, that's all that's happening over there. Um, he blessed, now by the way, Hirsch was anti-history. Uh, Hirsch felt the same way. When W.C. Hoffman, who was a from guy, published a, uh, uh, his dissertation, Biography of Shmuel, uh, yeah, it says what? So he says, uh, 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 Samuel, Hirsch wanted to put the book in Kerem because he treats uh, Shmuel like a person. He quotes Gratz and Weiss and all the others over there. He was of a different type. Anyway, that half of the Darsh Hashanah, when it comes to the era of the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the formation of this, where really there's no information, almost, very little outside of the Talmud and the Mishnah itself, uh, where knowledge of the Talmud counts, Halevi wiped the floor with all the other historians because they didn't come to his level in learning at all. They didn't have his, his immediate and total knowledge of all, the, of all the literature. And he offers many fine insights into the composition history of the text. Um, here he darshans not Josephus, because Josephus is dead, but Shriya Gaon. Uh, there's a famous book, the Egeris for Shriya Gaon, where uh, one of the Goanim in Babylonia gives the history of the Torah Shalapet, and he goes at this in great detail, baby. He has a whole long business of the compositions. I remember he says, there's this uh, layer of the first Tanoim, and then they write the, the second layer, and the third one, then the first layer of the Talmud Babli comes in Abaya Rava's time, and then comes the second recension of it. This is technical stuff, but on the other hand, he does this, first of all, to give out his, his opinion of what happened, and also to uh, destroy the hundred theories that the others created without anything to stand, to stand on. Um, he has a lot of insights. He thinks that Tom Bobby is a finished work, which is something I don't agree with. Uh, but it's just, you know, he, may, he hammers this home point. Uh, if you remember from last summer, wherever, he came up with the idea, who is this Antoninus guy that you find as a friend of Rehuda Nazi? He came with Marcus Aurelius. Which again, I don't think it's actually true, but it's a very good guess, because which Roman emperor had any interest in philosophy other than party, other than Marcus Aurelius? And so you see, his books are full of all kinds of these insights, if you're interested in this subject. If you're not, it's boring. Halevi was convinced that the strengths of his arguments would be so powerful that the non-religious would be compelled to admit their correctness. This would compel them, in his vision, to reevaluate their entire theological stance, to drop atheism, reform, and return, if not to orthodoxy, then at least to, tradi to Jewish traditionalism. He was nuts. Okay? <laughs> that was not going to happen. Okay? The Jewish academic world, 
which in his time was what? There were no Jewish professors in universities, because the University of Anti-Semitic wouldn't have a Jewish professor. So Jericho, the seminary professors from the different JTSs, Maskilim, um, and historians, private Jewish historians, they hate him. And therefore they deliberately ignored his book. You know, you don't reveal it. That's how you go. You deliver your book. Or else they sneeringly noted its shortcomings without critiquing his arguments. Okay? The non-Jewish academic with the Russian world, of course, completely ignored it. First of all, he couldn't read it. Right? This drove him crazy. <laughs> he thought he's a revolutionary. He wanted textbooks based on those who showed up that should spread throughout Jewish schools all over the world. And if the non-religious schools, or at least the religious schools, should use them, at least the from day schools. The whole attitude is reflected in his very complex relationship with this guy Zev Yavitz, who is more or less one of the founders of Mizrahi, and uh, one of the most influential in the first half of the 20th century Jewish historians, even though he doesn't hold the candle to him, and he, and he admits it. Okay? Uh, Yavitz, what he couldn't, what they, they had a, a whole love-hate relationship. Yavitz, perhaps you had this in the house. It's 11 volumes, told us you may throw. This is, this is the uh, Mizrahi version of Jewish history from long ago. Uh, Yavis, by the way, invented Tubishvat. <laughs> no, I mean it. As a, as a holiday, he's the one who made it. He made Tubishvat. You know, they plant trees and all that sort of thing. Um, so he's a, you know, he, he, he wrote poems. So he was a very, very interesting uh, person. One of the early pioneers in Palestine, although his health broke down, he had to move away. And, uh, and he keeps telling him, look, you're a better writer than I am. You can put out the 12 hours. Read my stuff. He says, I read your stuff. Your stuff is very good. But he had already been too influenced by what was out there and he couldn't bring himself to reorganize the textbooks to conform to what he wanted and here you have your breakup and your division already almost a hundred years ago between the Agudah and the Mizrahi of different types of versions of Jewish history and the Agudah is saying like this you're taking the non-from stuff and just putting a, 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 a kosher stamp on it you know, putting star K right? you need to reevaluate honestly the whole past and see that everything they're saying in the history books are lies okay? You know, if you're going to be enjoying, do the trouble like I did to work it through. Now, Halevi um, wanted pure Haredi history, untainted, as he saw it, by my skill and business shop, pseudo-scholarship. He was intellectually honest enough to say that sometimes the other guys get it right, but he didn't want the real history, as he saw it, to be obscured by academic conventions created by the non from using the academic voice, which is what happens all the time until today. The best he could get in his time was being included in the pantheon of historians of the Talmud in dry, specialized studies. To get a book like this from 1933, you can already fall asleep looking at the title, you know. So he said, there are six opinions on the formation of Mishnah. There's Grant, there's White, there's Halevi, you know, all that sort of thing. So that's not what he, what, what he had. Let's put it this way. To some degree, he was a frustrated person. As I said, most people, even Yeshiva Bakram in Europe, found his writing style a total turnoff. It's very hard to read. Okay? He was a terrible writer. Uh, the Gedol of the big rabbis in Europe, they were delighted to have a from Nusach of the ancient history, right, of ancient Judaism, although I don't think they had the patience to read it either, but maybe I'm wrong. They did not deign to critique it, which would have been a sign of intellectual respect. Because, as they say, only weirdos are into Jewish history. <laughs> you see? The key thing with them is we have our own past. If you want to know what's the read Halevi. You, you get it? In other words, now it was out there. Um, Chaim Eiser was very strong this way Isaac Scher from Slobok was very profoundly influenced by his writings but they did what I just told you which is you know Halevi has it all don't believe these other books really he's got it what did he say I don't know whatever he say he's the one that you know he, he's the one that did it 
It did not get into Israeli uh, history textbooks. In the state of Israel, modern Israel, it's all, uh, the religious Zionists all used, yeah, used long time, Yavits for decades. You understand? Which, as I said before, was the other one just with a little hexer on it. Okay? Um, notice any particularly anti-religious, anti-Hazal statements were elided in the text. But basically, they're using their, uh, that approach. But Halevi had started something, even though it took a long time to get off the ground. Interestingly, in America, the uh, person that got in love with him, a uh, Victor Miller. Right? Where's Mr. There you go. He's a millionaire. Uh, right, Victor Miller, of course, from Baltimore, as we know, TA graduate, went off to YU in the very early years, and then went to Europe to study Slobodka. So, very religious. I mean, you don't need me to tell you, very religious. And in, really, in, in, in Slobodka, he's with Isaac Scher, who introduces him to the writings of Alevi, and he really gets into it. Uh, Victor Miller was a radical. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, and, what, and eventually, later in his career, he ended up in, as the Mashkiach for 20 years, something like that, in Chaim Berlin, or Putin's time. And uh, as a Mashkiach, you know, not only did he give what you call Mutzishmuz and this sort of thing, but he also gave history class. Because he realized they didn't know the past and he wants to get it right. And so he lectured on this for many years, using Halevi, basically, as his text. And as a result of all these shiurim and things he get over the years, he rewrote the whole thing in English and put it in normal, in normal uh, order. You get it? So in other words, you can either do it the hard way by reading the original, or you can do it the easy way, read it in English and in order, and that's uh, Torah Nation and Eternal People and maybe one other volume. But this is the Second Temple period, this is the Talmudic period, and I can tell you, it's, almost, it's, it's not word for word Halevi, but it almost is. You get it? Even when Halevi has a sneering remark, a victim of puts in a sneering remark, you know? He just uh, upgrades a little bit. With not only is Halevi takes about scholarly, he also takes a couple of digs at the state of Israel, you know. But but, uh, but but that's what it is. If you want, if I mean, if anybody's interested in this, uh, and uh, Halevi goes into more detail that this guy said this, and Avigdor will say the history writers say so and so. But it's 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 the same set of arguments over here. Uh, as a true radical, Rabbi Avigdor Miller glories in the counter historical quality of Doris Rishonim. I mean, he loved that stuff. That's who he was. He says, all the history books are wrong. And all these guys are liars. Okay? And this is the only real version of the subject, and here's why. Okay? Now, um, in the last third of the 20th century, a half century or so after the death of Halevi, a from mass sociologic comes in form in American Israel, as we know, that's part of the world in which we live. Large enough and vigorous enough to create an entire subculture completely dependent, independent, I should say, uh, from mainstream, not from Jewish culture. That's uh, an interesting thing that's happened in our time. Maybe it's under the radar screen for some people. Um, people, there's a huge population in America that doesn't buy the JPS. <laughs> that doesn't buy all these other things. They buy the Art Scroll. They have an entirely alternative, self-contained culture. Um, this was something that never happened. The uh, uh, subculture develops its own intellectual universe. I'd say this happened in the last 40 years. A giant intellectual ghetto, or if you prefer, a gated community. Um, in America, as we all know, the poster boy for this art scroll. Correct? So if you're part of this a movie, it's art scroll born, art scroll bred, and when you die, art scroll dead. You, you, know, you, have, no, you have no problem. Uh, but, I'm, but I know it sounds funny, but you know, th- this is where you get, these are the books you're interested in buying, not the others. Uh, about Judaism, that is to say. Um, the crown jewel, of course, is the Gemara, the art school shot in St. Thomas. Uh, 
which of course is totally not Goreis the Mechkar, correct? The Arsko Talmud is, 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 is like Halevi. They're totally proud about saying, we're not interested in what the university professors have to say about the Talmud or any kind of stuff. They, they can do their things if they want. We do our thing, and we're not interested in anything you have to say. Um, this is a principled stance, as they say. I mean, they'll, they'll be the first to, to say so. It infuriates the academics, of course, but big deal. The academics do the same thing. This is a friend of mine, Professor uh, Gaffney, in uh, Hebrew, and I just, I, I did give you an example of what I'm talking about. Maybe I told this story before. Uh, I was once in the 90s in a uh, conference in Jerusalem, uh, in the Institute of Advanced Studies in Hebrew, and uh, we're having lunch, and he tells me, and he's a religious guy, and he tells me that he came to America for a chasana, and, uh, which was in uh, Flatbush, Bar Park, something like that, and uh, he had a couple hours to so he went into Eichler's, just to see, even though he's a professor, just to see what the masses are doing. And, uh, and he sees history of Jewish people, Yavda Pompadita, which is his era of expertise. So he figures, ah, art scroll, uh, but what the heck, you know, he couldn't resist. So he opens it up, he's slipping, he says, this is not so bad. And he goes a few more pages, this is talking not so bad. And a few more pages, this is actually good. I'm shocked. And then a few more pages, this is plagiarized for me. <laughs> Right? So I asked him, I said, so what happened? You know, what would you do about that? He said, I put the book away. I could never admit to anybody in Israel ever read an art school book. <laughs> you see? So you have two parallel universities, each one totally not going to the other. All right? Now, if that's the case, a subculture such as I'm describing, which is growing, correct? The non from are shrinking. Growing. You know that demographically. So, such a culture requires its own history, does it not? You're not who you are in present if you don't have a past. Okay? And it is producing it. The barrel wine and that sort of thing is all aimed for this market. Right? This is a thing that's not, that's, it's not meant for the other Jews, right? But it's totally meant for within this, with this um, uh, culture. So the, and, and the irony today is a whole lot more Jews are reading the From History books than the non-From ones simply because the secular Judaism has collapsed as a culture. Out in Baltimore, Maryland, I wish this wasn't the case, but this is the case. In Baltimore, Maryland, or Philadelphia, or anywhere else, Jews who are not Orthodox, young people, whatever, do they read history books, Jewish history books? No, it's not what it was once upon a time when people were interested in Zionism, in Israel, active in Jewish causes, and therefore they'll read something from Cecil Roth, all that. They're post- Jewish times, so to speak, as they say. You understand? It's not who it is. And so, in terms of numbers, if the, I don't, whatever the historians say, if the art school puts out a book, it's read by 100,000 people. If a professor puts out a book, no matter how good it is, it's read by 100 people. Maybe. You see? Well, they're very infuriating. You get it? So, in this light, I come to my conclusion, the historical significance of the Dose Rishon of Yitzhak Alevi was he was the founder of this modern from history stream which is indeed being used to buttress the Jewish loyalties of its readers Notice, he was the one and all these books like Barrow and the others have this point in which they try to make you more Jewish get it? they want you to be proud of being Jewish uh, that's their agenda and it's being read by thousands of, and, and, and hundreds of thousands of people you had Israel together, the half a million people by contrast, today, a lot of the non-religious history books 
are undermining Jewish loyalty to Yiddishkeit and to the state of Israel. So, for example, if you read Shlomo, these are two, two uh, recent books, perhaps you see in reviewed over here uh, from Shlomo Sin, who's a professor at Tel Aviv University, among other places in Paris. Uh, the Jewish people, the Israel does not exist. It's a figment of imagination. And the Jewish people do not exist. It's a figment of imagination. So what is the point of this history? And by the way, he's an award-winning uh, guy. What's the point of this history? Undermines. You see? So the person after they read this, what do they feel about their own Judaism? So it's, not, so it's interesting. It's not only a from versus non from thing, but it's a uh, reinforcing versus undermining thing that's happening today, which is very, very interesting. Okay? You go to um, Barnes & Noble, uh, if you wish, and pull one of the titles off. And very often, not always, of course, not always, but very often, you'll find one who will undermine Israel, will undermine Jewish culture, undermine any Jewish claims to anything in the past. So what are you writing for? Well, you get ahead in the academic world that way. You see? You'll be admired as, a, as, a, as an iconoclast, what's called the new historians. So the people, you know, uh, Elon Papa and uh, Benny Morris and uh, all the other guys over there, Avi Schleim, they can show you how bad Israel was from day one. Therefore, Israel doesn't deserve, deserve to exist. And so, um, I leave with one uh, last, very interesting, perhaps disturbing thought, and that is, how Yitzhak Isaac Alevi left no successors. Nobody picked up the ball in, in 100 years from where, it's literally 100, he died in 1914, from where, he, where he, he, was a, he was a unique, you know, he was a phenomenon. And that is indeed food for thought, and with that I bid you good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.